Welcome to Vernacular Verbose, Jethro Tull Podcast. My name's Joey Vetter. My name is Eugene Manco. Today we're taking a look at Stormwatch, released in 1979. If you enjoy the podcast and are feeling generous, you can now support us on Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash vernacular verbose. Any donations made will go right back into producing the podcast by helping us cover our editing costs. Again, that's ko-fi.com slash vernacular verbose. So with Stormwatch, we come to the end of the 70s and uh, the end of what I guess you'd call the golden era of the band. So this is kind of, I guess, famously the last album of the folk trilogy and the last album before the big split in 1980 of the band. So in that sense, it carries a lot of importance, I think, when you look at kind of the macro history of the Toll discography. What do you think, Eugene? Yeah, it is an end of an era and what an end it is, mm-hmm. I must say. This is, um, I think it, it has been hinted at before and i will say it straight up of the alleged folk trilogy this is my favorite album and we talked about this before that the the concept of the folk trilogy is debatable and ian himself has said that this wasn't intended to be sort of the follow-up to heavy horses as much as we've come to think of it as and i think i think it does make sense because it does sound very different from songs from the wood and heavy horses but it does have folk elements yeah and we we can't really say that it's not progressive folk rock it is still progressive folk rock it's just the next version of it yeah i think thematically it's a lot more wide-ranging than Song from mm-hmm. the Wood and Heavy Horses. And that Song from the Wood and Heavy Horses, I think you can kind of pin down the theme very easily in just a couple words. In Stormwatch, it's a little harder to do that, I feel like. And maybe that's just a way of saying that it's not, you know, as thematically consistent of an album, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be. But, you know, it's a lot more wide-ranging when it goes from things like climate to just kind of general, you know, maritime living, seaside living, that kind of thing. There's a lot of songs that are very clearly inspired by Scotland and specifically the Isle of Skye, where Ian was living at the time. And uh, in general, it's, again, it's like you said, it's anchored in that sort of folk pastoralish world, but it has more of a wider berth, I guess. It's not really stuck just in fantasy, like Songs from the Wood. It's not really stuck just in the home or, you know, the the pastoral farmland or whatever it would be in Heavy Horses. Instead, it's a bit more wide-ranging. I think I would only attribute the word pastoral to Songs from the Wood Mm. out of all these works. And if if we do look at these three albums as as a journey, then... I am imagining that with with songs from the wood, we are starting in a in a magical dell full of fairy creatures and full of uh, ye olden times, as you may say. Uh, and then by by heavy horses, we've moved out of that fairy dell and we have entered the real world in the countryside that is connected to that notional to that notional universe of uh, rural Britain. But which which has more elements of the real world in it, which has more questions about how things work, more questions about how how this world fits in with with the wider world, as we've uh, we've seen in like Journeyman, mm-hmm. and by Stormwatch, we've traversed the mainland, if we, if we can call the British the British island the mainland, and we've ended up on the shore with all of, all of its heavy weather with all of the all of the questions about the future now and it's it's not just 
the physical shore where lands meet land meets sea of which we have a lot in this album but it is also the the frontier of knowledge we've uh, we're now pondering the questions to which we don't have answers like the climate change i think in in that regard there is there is a narrative between these three albums and stormwatch is part of that narrative and thematically i think it, it does have a theme and but and this the theme is you can say it's quite general but the theme is heavy weather yeah and we can and we make the connection to the song heavy horses with that because that is the phrase from heavy horses brewing heavy weather and that is what's happening in pretty much every song on stormwatch no matter what uh, what ian is talking about in a specific song there is always this element of of the elements yeah that's a very poetic way of looking at it i've never really uh thought about it that way but i'm sure you're right there's uh i mean certainly weather is a theme that's found throughout a lot of the different tracks and of course with the album title itself uh which isn't you know it's not a title track it's you know taken from the lyrics of one of the songs and mm -hmm. that kind of thing so it was clearly deemed to be thematically important enough to be the title of the record yeah that's, that's the sort of my take on this when I look at the album and kind of its legacy going forward until there's mm -hmm. a couple things that stick out to me. One thing, I'm curious if you would agree with this or not, but one of the peculiarities of Stormwatch to me has been that there doesn't really seem to be a track on this album that has had much of a life beyond the album, if you know what I mean. Oh, yes. In other, it's kind of just a short way of saying there's not really any hits on this album. And I don't really mean to say that there were hits necessarily on the past couple albums either, because there kind of weren't, like commercially speaking. But I just mean, you know, there's not a, really many songs, if any, on Stormwatch that I think kind of lasted in the Toll legacy afterwards. So, for example, you can look at an album like War Child, which as an album maybe wasn't super impactful, but it still had tracks like uh, Skating Away, Bungo in the Jungle, which had very long lives in the band's career afterwards. I can't really think of any track on this album that did that. The only one I could really name would be maybe Dunringle, but I can't really name another one. I would agree about Dunringle, and yeah, uh, it's true that this album is kind of neglected in the tall life sets mm -hmm. of the subsequent years, and uh, to me, it is a great shame. You know, I I know that these days Ian doesn't really have much of a sort of track rotation in the life set. It's pretty yeah. much uh, we know if we go to an Ian to Ian's concert. W w what is the set of tracks that the selection will be made from but still both times i went to see him i kind of ho hoped deep in my heart what if they play something from stormwatch of course they didn't yeah you know toll have always just as kind of an aside toll as a live act have always been a very static band and that you know they're mm -hmm. they're one of those groups that they've pretty much always played the same set list every tour and that kind of thing which, you know, again, it's it's all to the preference of the band, but it's, it's a shame for a band like Tull just because they had such a huge library of stuff they could pick from that it's kind of sad that, you know, I think Ian's sets, to be honest, are probably a little more flexible than even Tull were at their peak, which is kind of sad. You know, mm -hmm. I wish that uh, in at their peak that Tull would have uh, dug into their back catalog a lot more because uh, they had a lot to learn from or a lot to use. There are some live sets which do which have surprising tracks on them. Mm -hmm. Like the album "Living with the Past," I think there are there, there are a couple of interesting numbers. 
but overall yes and i know that uh, tall musicians expressed i think martin if i'm not mistaken expressed that uh, he was kind of dissatisfied with th that they kept playing the same tracks over and over yeah definitely one of the other things uh that kind of strikes me about i guess public opinion about stormwash kind of the fan reaction i was surprised when i sort of first became involved with i guess what you'd call the online tall community that this is kind of a fan favorite album online from what i can see there's there's a very passionate uh fan base for this album online And this may be kind of skewed for me just because when I grew up, this was another album that my parents weren't really fans of. They didn't really think it was worth bothering with much, so I sort of didn't either. And so it was kind of surprising to me to see that there was so much love for this album online. That was a little surprising. Uh, and my own opinion about it has changed too, where you know, for, from the beginning I didn't care about it much, but there's tracks on here that I've grown to appreciate a lot more over time. That's interesting. I don't think I have noticed a lot of spe love specifically for oh, really? this album on online. Yes, uh, it is one of my favorite Tell albums, and uh, part of it is surely to do with priming, to do with what what I heard first, mm -hmm. and this was one of the one of the Tell records that we had. Therefore, I grew grew up with this album, and it's a it's a big part of my life. Yeah and is therefore in my yeah in my top tall albums for sure it's right r right there with with my absolute favorites mm -hmm. such as passion play and thick as a brick so w w we did dis discuss that before yes uh, the the folk trilogy the the two first albums from the folk trilogy for me rank below stormwatch and stormwatch is up there because maybe it's not specifically groundbreaking and genius album but it's it's very dear to me mm -hmm. and it has a special place in my heart and i don't i don't think undeservedly so there's a couple um well, let me say first that i'm kind of the opposite in that i guess you see the folk trilogy getting better as they go along and i kind of see the opposite mm -hmm. one interesting thing about it is there's a couple of cut tracks from this album that In my opinion, if they were on the album in place of some of the other weaker ones, they would have made the album a lot stronger. And particularly Kelpie and Stitch in Time, which are both very good songs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Cross Sword is also another uh, song that came from these sessions. But it's really sad to me. I don't understand how Ian could hear Kelpie and think that that wasn't album material, because that's one of my favorite tall bonus tracks ever. I wish that one was on here. Yeah, that's true. Kel Kelpie is a brilliant song, and I wouldn't mind if one of the songs on on this album was replaced with Kelpie, but there's only one. <laughs> mm -hmm. or, or maybe two. I don't know. There's Yeah, there are a couple. I'm not saying that this album is ch chock full of masterpieces. Uh, there are a couple of weaker spots. But overall, still still love it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when the, when the remaster, the remix came out, I was very much fascinated by... Orion full version. Oh yeah. I do I do understand why they decided to cut it down, but still, you know, it's such so much more prog in the full version. Mm -hmm. I I absolutely loved it. What's your opinion on the album cover? Mm, it is not one of my favorite Tal covers, but then again, with with, with Tal, I am not a fan of most cover art to be to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I think the two the two album covers with Jethro Tull that I think are good works, good works of art in and of themselves and stand 
next to the great album covers in in music history i think are passion play and roots to branches (laughs) to to be really honest and the rest i can just take them or leave them and i think the mood of this of this cover really really fits the album that's what i can say i'm not a massive fan of the sort of airbrushed art and it kind of with the with the quote from don ringel it seems to me a little bit busy yeah just like just like the cover of, of heavy horses but i think i think i like this one more than the cover of heavy horses yeah it's really dramatic mm-hmm. is kind of the word i would use for it and it's kind of so dramatic that it gets kind of ridiculous i think on this one yeah i i i think you've you've hit the nail on the head here if i saw a book with this cover i wouldn't assume this was this was great literature you know what i mean yeah and it's really kind of impressively detailed, which is cool. But mm-hmm. for me, it's a couple, you know, it's kind of a hodgepodge of different things. It's number one, you have, you know, I guess a character who is obviously Ian on the front who I don't really like again. And you, you have, <laughs> I don't know, it's, there's just so much about it that it seems like it's trying so hard to seem important and dramatic. And I mean, I think trying to have an important or dramatic looking album cover isn't a bad thing, but it just it just seems like it's trying so hard that it comes off as kind of unintentionally funny almost. Yeah, I will agree. I don't I don't hate this cover, but I think sort of the the way the album sounds in my head, it could have had a much better cover. Yeah. One thing that is cool about it, I like the detail with the reflection of this the lightning and the uh-huh. binoculars. It's kind of cool. Yeah, the the, the oil rig in the yeah in the binoculars it's the back cover is pretty cool with the polar bear and <laughs> the with the absolutely giant polar bear yeah you know one thing i wanted to bring up this might be a little obscure um at disney world in florida uh-huh. there uh is a ride that used to be there but it, it's no longer there but in uh the epcot theme park you know they have kind of a section where it's like different countries of the world with different rides and shops and that kind of thing there used to be a ride in the Norway section that was called Maelstrom. Have you ever heard of that at all? No, of course not. <laughs> so it was a boat ride. And um, this will sound weird, but I swear to God, it's like if it's almost like the people at Disney wanted to create a theme park attraction about this album. <laughs> like that's what that ride was like. And maybe anybody listening here knows what I'm talking about if you're from the US or something. But it was because it was created at in like the early 80s, kind of right around this same time. So you kind of have that late 70s, early 80s aesthetic thing going on. It was supposed to be kind of a, a boat ride through uh, Nordish folklore and that kind of thing. But there's so many things about it that are so similar to this album in really weird ways. There's there was a scene that looks exactly like the back cover of the album where you're kind of in this frozen waste and you have this huge polar bear standing up next to you. There's a scene where you're in front of an oil rig with a, a like a, a thunderstorm going on, just like the front cover with North Sea oil and stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. that's always just been like a really weird thing that has kind of stuck to me is like how how are there so many connections between these two completely random things? It's so funny. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go on it with Stormwatch in your headphones? No, that that would have been a great idea, though. Yeah, and it's a shame that it doesn't exist anymore, and there's there's not an opportunity to do that. Yeah, it's one of those relics of the early '80s. Mm-hmm. Parts of so musically, I mean, parts of the album they sound kind of mournful to me, mm-hmm. and I always thought it was kind of interesting because it's almost like it was anticipating, you know, the big split of the band in a way. But I mean, I don't think that was you know an intention or anything, but. 
especially with tracks like Elegy, it sounds very wistful and it's it's kind of hard to uh, disassociate that from what was about to happen in the band, I think. Yeah, that's true. And it is also kind of fitting that John played bass on Elegy, one of the few tracks he did. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's an important thing worth mentioning in the member lineup. There's a uh, a very big change that's worth m- noting. So on this album, we had Ian Anderson on vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, and bass guitar for most of the tracks. Martin Barr on electric guitar, John Glasscock playing bass on only three tracks, Barry Barlow on drums, John Evans on keyboards, Dee Palmer on keyboards. So the the basic story with John Glasscock is that his uh, so heart issues, his health issues were becoming so serious that he was essentially dismissed from recording by Ian because Ian felt he wasn't well enough to do the rest of the album. And so that ended up with uh, Ian playing bass on the majority of the album and John only playing on uh, three tracks. Yeah, I think uh, part of the issue that John was recuperating from an operation he had had. Yeah. Which, of course, in the end, he never did recuperate from because he died Mm -hmm. uh, during the tour for this album in November of 79. Yeah, he wasn't on the tour. But right. he died while, while the band was was on the tour, mm-hmm. and they had to announce it. So, as a, as a yeah, bassist, it, do you have any comments on Ian's bass playing? Does anything stick out to you? Uh, yes, the bass sticks out to me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because I feel like uh, on every track where Ian played bass, uh, the bass is mixed louder. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't yes. notice that. Uh, the, the, and it has uh, more of a ringing quality. The uh-huh. tone is very different between yeah. Ian and John. Yeah, the tone John is very different to me. Much, much more muted tone. And uh, I think sort of um, in terms of the approach to bass, um, I think Ian's bass playing is totally fine. But the bass tone could could use some work. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of sticks out. It's kind of blends in less than than John's would. And th- there is a track on, on this one where I think the part that Ian played uh, is is very fine and very interesting. I think a couple of tracks sh- for sure. Mm-hmm. Track one, North Sea Oil. So this is actually one of my favorites on the album, right off the bat. Good. <laughs> I re- <laughs> the w- one of the weird things about this one is the adjective that I would use to describe the the way this song sounds is tropical, which wow. is kind of funny because obviously the North Sea is not a tropical area. It's very you know cold and gray yeah, and sure. muddy. Very different. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reason I say that is the guitar, and I think specifically uh-huh. the the guitar tone in the chorus, the North Sea. Uh, uh-huh. It sounds really tropical <laughs> to me i don't know that's that's the way i would put it it's very kind of like uh-huh. you know hot and sunny and it sounds like a, a beach thing almost to me well yeah you know when you're a sailor on a boat uh and you traverse the oceans you can be in the in the northern latitudes and still you know have relics of of tropical climates in your in your cabin you know? yeah uh, that, that's sort of what being a sailor is all about. Of course, it's not w- what being an oil 
what you call a person who works on an oil rig. Rigger? No. But yeah, you can. T- I, I could make a tenuous connection to you know uh, an eclectic approach to the sound. Mm-hmm. I think in this song, well, first of all, what what strikes me is the opening track to the album isn't five four. Mm. Yeah. And it's such a bold choice. And it's such a fantastic 5-4 as well. Uh, because normally, uh, the, sto- the sort of standard rhythm that is chosen uh, in uh, music written in 5-4 uh, is uh, what you will hear on such as living, living in the past. Tagada, tagada, pum, pam, 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 pam. And that uh, adds a little swing. And that is uh, take five. By Dave Brubeck, right? Or if you will, everything's all right. Yes, everything's all right. Yes, that is the standard five-four that we are used to hearing in, pardon me, saying so popular music. But this track, completely different, completely different division and completely different rhythm within that bar of five-four. It's I think the the central the central rhythmic idea is what we hear be, before the vocals come in. Dum da dum da 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 dum dum da dum da da dum. And it is similar if if you sing it like that. It's similar to to the standard five four rhythm, but it has a completely different feel. Yeah, it's very uh, it's a really energetic track, which. Mm-hmm. I'd kind of say that there's not a lot of energetic tracks on this album, and I don't mean to conflate energetic with intense or loud or anything, uh-huh. but there's kind of an energy on this track that I think the rest of the album doesn't have to that degree. Well, I'd say something's on the move, pretty pretty energetic as well, yeah. mm-hmm. side opener, so I think they've, they've put the high energy ones at the start of, of each respective side. One thing with this song too is that it's, it's a song that only Tull can write. You know, yeah. like a rock band writing a song about North Sea oil. That's just one of those oh, things yes, that I love about the band <laughs> that, you know, you, you don't see anybody else doing. Yeah, I think Ian makes a note of that in the, in the booklet. So it's not a very standard rock and roll song topic. When looking at the, at the harmony in this track, uh, what I wrote down in my notes is that it irreverently skips from key to key. Uh, you could, if you like, I think, analyze it as having two keys and where each key is kind of explored thoroughly from different sides but i feel the point of all these key changes is to ki- just to kick the ground from under our feet because we are at sea it's kind of the feeling of open sea and stormy weather where you don't know where you are and wh- where you end up next mm-hmm. and so that that the kind of tumultuous feeling that the, the the key changes lend i think to this to this song they happen in the verse. They, <coughs> damn it, uh, they happen in the verse and in the chorus, and uh, the instrumental part is also uh, in a completely different key to the rest of the song. Yeah, the bridge in particular is quite uh, mm-hmm. kind of hard to orient yourself, and not in a bad way. That's just kind of the way it sounds, and uh, particularly with you have kind of that like news cast or whatever it is going on that Ian is narrating the shipping the forecast yeah. it is the shipping the shipping forecast it, it's an iconic radio broadcast in in, in Britain yeah I don't know if, if anyone uh, is specifically reading that if Ian is doing that or if they took a recording 
it's not it's not specified in, in in the track but it certainly sounds like shipping forecast always sounds oh really it, it sounded like it was done in the studio to me but what do i know mm -hmm. there's some crazy double bass at the end uh kick drum mm -hmm. yeah pretty fantastic and uh in the percussion part what i really like in here is the lot of 30 second notes on the shakers or maracas yeah uh and it switches from being maracas to being tambourine and i even think sometimes to being hi-hat but i'm not sure because the tambourine blends really well with the hi-hat here and the, there's a switch um from maracas to tambourine on the second half of a verse and it subtly really subtly increases the energy without actually changing the part mm -hmm. The guitar here, um, in the second and the third verse, the sort of guitar stabs that are happening in the background, uh, land on really, really crazy beats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. And um, in the coda, in the, in the outro, the, there's a flute phrase that is, I think, it has either a flanger on it or it's double-tracked or something, something happened there. It's has a, almost a bagpipey vibe because the, there's actually bagpipe flourishes on that flute line and i i remember that i criticized some of the f effects on the flute on heavy horses and maybe not maybe not heavy horses on songs from the wood but this flanger or whatever it is here uh, it this one blends really well with the guitar in a less acoustic context. I think th this is more of a place for, for flute effects like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the track slide, I noticed that the track slightly speeds up by the end, so clearly not played to a click like people would do today. Oh, I didn't notice that, but when I, when I think about it, I, I can kind of see that. Yeah, I sort of noticed that, and th then I just double-checked the first verse against the last verse, and yeah, <laughs> it's clearly faster. Track 2, Orion. I already mentioned that Orion full version was uh, undeservedly cut from the album, but yeah, it's quite long, it's nine minutes. Uh, this one, I think it's got a really nice juxtaposition of a really foreboding kind of chorus and really peaceful verses. There's not, uh, there is a key change, but it's not mm, as stark as you will have in North Sea Oil. There's two keys using a single chord as the pivot chord be between the chorus and the verse. And it's kind of sparse harmonically, despite having two, uh, two keys used in it. It's, and I think it's, it just uses minimum tricks to their full effect, uh, and of course, this is the one of the one of the three tracks that John Glasscock played bass on. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I don't know. Something about this song is strange to me, and I can't really put my finger on what it is. But something about it just doesn't really sit well with me. And really? you, you mm -hmm. mentioned that the you like the juxtaposition between the kind of the heavy choruses and the quieter verses. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know if that's kind of my problem with it. I think maybe it could be. It's kind of hard for me to pinpoint mm -hmm. exactly what unsettles me about it. I think that during the chorus, there um, are not necessarily the chorus, but the, the foreboding part that you mentioned, kind of the louder parts, mm -hmm. it kind of sounds like they're really trying to be hard rock, sort of, in, in moments, and it comes off a little forced to me sometimes. 
the main the main thing I think about when I think about this song musically is just kind of the heartbeat pulse of the chorus because that's a very integral part of the song. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't I don't really have a lot to say on this one. It's it's kind of one of those songs that it it kind of goes in one ear out the other for me. And I, I think the part I like about it the most is probably the quieter verses. I think that's probably the the mm-hmm. highlight of it to me. Well, yeah, I I will not agree because. This is one of, again, one of my favorites on this album. I re- mm-hmm. really love this song. I really love the mood it sets. Uh, so I welcomed the full version uh, in the remix a lot uh, as an extra. I, I don't feel they're, they're trying too hard to, to, to be heavy because it's not like they're, they're having double tracked, massively distorted electric guitars. Mm-hmm. And, and shouting uh, it's just it's foreboding enough I think that they're, they're achieving what they set out to achieve uh, the verses I think have a lot of excitement actually in the drum part because the drum parts are really different in everywhere in, in between every every verse in mm-hmm. combination there are drum parts that repeat but not in not, not in the same order mm-hmm. and I think it makes it much less monotonous than it, than, than it could have been. And I, I think Barry did an absolutely excellent job on this song. Mm-hmm. I didn't uh, listen to the full version. I, I should have done that before we started, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure I've heard it at some point, but I, I'm not recalling exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, it's just it's, it's got a lot of extra content. It's, mm-hmm. it's not the same song but longer it's just, it just it has extra stuff and that's probably another uh, consequence of vinyl storage capacity which sure, if this yes. was released 20 years later we probably would have gotten the whole thing mm-hmm. i don't know just the the kind of mood that this song creates the even even taking it into account that it's not a very high energy song mm-hmm. for for the most part it's still kind of high energy for me by virtue of the choruses and it, it's a surprisingly energizing song for the sort of low tempo music that it is. Mm-hmm. I think one thing I can say about it is the the louder parts. They do a very good job of sounding like sounding celestial, is the way I would put it. Yeah, yeah, they do. I think they do a good job of achieving that, which obviously I'm sure was the intention since the song is called Orion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's kind of the uh, that's part of the, what makes it uplifting for me. Mm-hmm. Track three, home. Why don't you come awake and let your first smile take me home? So this is a pretty glorious song, I think. I don't know about you, but uh-huh. it's um, it's very much a ballad. Obviously, it's it's you know very much yeah. a power ballad. There's so many things about it that are just stereotypically ballad. Uh, even down to just you know the drum part and things like that but uh so i mean in a way i can kind of understand if someone was to call it cheesy but i don't know it it works for me it's pretty uh it's pretty powerful the the part i like the most is probably just how heroic the guitar sounds Uh (laughs) you know what i mean you know the da 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 da, the way it comes in is so awesome Mm -hmm. i think i have a little bit of an issue with this song and I think it's the, the placement on the album. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like a postscript post to Orion, and it has a little less energy. Yeah. And the, in that regard, it 
creates a slightly low point, but not because it's it's a weak song, mm-hmm. just because I think that the placement Orion into home, I think not the best that that could have been chosen. Really like the phased guitar in the verse. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. really nice. With this one, I think the drum parts could have been more exciting a little bit. Uh, it's just there's probably a little bit too much of a straight pop rock kind of drumming. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean with the whole ballad thing. Yeah, and I think I mean, uh, my my in, uh, interpretation yeah. of it is that was very much you know on purpose from Barry is that he felt that that was what he needed to do on this kind of song because it's definitely not yeah, a sure. traditional Barry Barlow drum part by any means. Yeah. That, that that is a good point. If, if Barry played something like that, it, it was because he meant it. Mm-hmm. Harmonically, uh, is it the first Tal song that uses what, what is called a line cliche, which is a descending bass line over pretty much the same chord? Oh, I know what you mean. It's yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the same thing that happens in songs such as Stairway to Heaven or um, While My While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. There are there, there is one surprising chord in it, uh, the B flat. The the, the the song is in A minor and there is a B flat, so it's just half step above, which is non diatonic. You would, one would say. Um, overall, yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this song. Uh, the, the, no, the, there is one thing. Ian refers to this song as one of his few romantic songs. Uh, and yeah, it is, it is certainly a love song, but it's interesting how uh, the notion of romanticism uh, is for me is for him uh, connected with the idea of home. It's a it's quite a cozy song, homely, uh, which is if if you think about the meaning of the word romantic historically in as in romantic literature, uh, this is the opposite. <laughs> of a romantic theme, right? The romantic theme is the theme of adventure, is the theme of conflict, of standing on your own against the crowd and so on and so forth. And uh, being all settled and cozied up at home uh, is kind of not that. My uh, interpretation of the lyrics was that it's about touring or, or rather returning from touring. And, yeah, uh, Ian writes a lot about that. Yeah, and I think that would make perfect sense as a romantic song for a guy like Ian, especially who was married with kids at this time, that mm-hmm. him coming home from touring, uh, you know, that that was how he um, connected, of course, with his family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, as early as To Cry You're a Song. Yeah. On Benefit, we've had, we've had this theme. It's pretty short, this song. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like the way the strings work in it, and I really like uh, the ending. I love the ending chord. It's a very sweet-sounding ending chord. Yeah, the strings for sure, the synth strings mm-hmm. are great, but so are all the strings arrangements on the on this album. But yeah, I like this one. This was kind of a latecomer for me. There's a couple different tracks mm-hmm. on here that I, I mean, I'm sure I knew about them, but it took me a while before I really discovered them and fell in love with them, and this is kind of one of those songs that I found later. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that, that that you like it so much, but yeah, it's it's great. It's great that you do. Track four, Dark Ages. Dark Ages. Well, this one is certainly, I think, the kind of central masterpiece on the album. It's very complex. It's very long. 
uh, it's got a lot going on in the story, in the music, and you've got initially a very similar juxtaposition of keys uh, that to what happens in Orion, but there are just more of them in, in the entire song. More keys, more everything, more time signature changes. This is the sort of full prog, even compared to North Sea Oil. Yeah, I think on this one. Yeah, uh, we talked a bit about on Songs from the Wood and Heavy Horses how kind of each album had kind of like a dark, long, epic track, mm-hmm. where Songs from the Wood had P-Rock. Heavy Horses, you could say, I mean, Heavy Horses, the song you could say was kind of like that, but I think the dark epic yeah. on that one was No Lullaby. And then mm-hmm. uh, this is obviously the one for this album. Yeah. So I don't want to break any hearts here, but to be honest, I don't have a lot positive to say about this one. <laughs> so I will start with the positives first. Um, I really, the thing I like about it the most probably is the sound design at the beginning and a little bit at the end yeah. also. I think that does a really effective job of kind of conveying what they wanted to convey, which to me is kind of like, this is the back cover is what I picture when I hear the song, is uh-huh. kind of those frozen wasteland and that kind of thing. And I think they did a good job with that. Mm-hmm. I think in the sound design, of course, the reverse reverb slash delay on the vocals in the intro yeah. is pretty fantastic. Uh, there's also a sort of, I called it an icy synth mm. on, on the line, jagged fires mark the picket lines. It's very cool. And uh, there's, in the a cappella chorus, there is, I'm hearing some kind of very high-pitched noise. Some, uh, I'm not sure if that is some kind of percussive addition or, may, or even an artifact of just vocals blending, but it's, it, it does have an ice cracking hmm. kind of element to it. And uh, I think it's, it's, well, it's a conscious sound design decision, whatever it is. Yeah, it's very clear sonically that they were going for a very massive sound on this song. Mm-hmm. And you can tell it just from the drums, because the, the drums sound huge in this song. Yeah. I'm sure on purpose. And the way they enter on the on the, on the the switch to the 6-8 time signature, to the faster part, mm-hmm. is just fantastic. Or the, the, the tom rolls. I think roto-toms as well. Yeah, there's a roto-tom fill at one point. I noted mm-hmm. that. So what's the problem with this song, do you think? <laughs> well, my, my main problem is it's, I mean, probably like people can expect is I just think it's too long uh-huh. and there's not from the beginning there's just not a lot that really interests me to the point that I want to hear it for nine minutes you know <laughs> I think it's kind of cool like I think especially kind of the main I guess the main riff of the da 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 that, that's kind of cool but mm-hmm. I just don't I don't want to hear it that long one part that's kind of interesting that I noticed the march snare part and I don't mean yeah. like the, it's more like the da 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 da, that kind of syncopated part mm-hmm. is really reminiscent of Thick as a Brick, which mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure wasn't intentional, but it, when I heard that, it imme- immediately made me think of Thick as a Brick with the similar drum parts there on that. Yeah, I think just the, the rhythms they come up with. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of expected you to not like that it's a, a bit long and that they repeat the, fir- the first verse at the end, what they do in Heavy Horses <laughs> or No Lullaby yeah. or songs like that. But, well, they just do that, right? In a, as early as Aqualong, it's so, sort of a tall thing. Yeah. We do the first verse again and then go into a, a loud outro kind of thing. But it's, I think... It's very well executed in this situation. The return to the first verse is pretty short, and it follows follows into the coda quite nicely. And this is not a no lullaby situation where they just repeat the entire song two times. Right. This yeah. one is all, all clear. It's good to go. And the the outro is the, the, just fantastic. 
Yeah, I wanted to mention the outro because it's it's pretty interesting how they bring back the intro but with synths in the back. Mm -hmm. This isn't a song that I listen to very often, if ever, and I especially don't make it past the nine minute mark usually. So uh, listening to this album, it was kind of fun because you know the outro is not something I've heard very often. So hearing it again was kind of new to me and fresh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know, I mean, um, you can compare mm -hmm. it to No Lullaby because there's a lot of similarities, I think. But uh, for me, kind of just what it comes down to personally is No Lullaby, I actually think is quite interesting. My problem with No Lullaby is just that they repeat the entire song again, which I think they didn't mm -hmm. need to do. With this one, there's just not a lot that really hooks me to it to begin with. So I just have kind of less interest. Mm -hmm. No, I'm I'm really hooked from the beginning, mm -hmm. I think. And in, in this song, I th this song I think has one of my favorite Martin Barr solos mm. in the break. That, that that phrase with the tremolo arm that he does. And overall, I think for Martin's guitar tone, this is my favorite album. Yeah, I yeah, I can see that. This is the best best Martin Barr guitar tone in this across the 70s. Yeah, the tone is a big part of a lot of songs here. I think, like, North Sea Oil is kind of what I was mentioning, just the way that the mm -hmm. tone sounds on that song is really awesome. Yeah. One thing that's worth mentioning, just as we're talking about this song, there's a documentary, not not a full-length documentary, but kind of a short television documentary. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what the name was, if it had a specific name, but it, was, it came out in 79 or 80, and it was kind of, it was interviews with band members in various places on tour in the studio, or just in their houses, different places. But it actually had some footage of what I think was the recording of this song in yes. the studio, if you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah, um, I do, with Ian singing, actually singing his parts. Yeah, which is really interesting, just because studio footage of Tull is extremely rare, so to see mm -hmm. that is pretty interesting. And if anybody can find that online, I think it's kind of hard to find. It's been kind of split up into a bunch of different parts, but it's really worth looking at because it's kind of rare to find video footage from the 70s of the band in those kind of contexts. Mm -hmm. I know what you're talking about. I've seen it and it's really worth watching. Again, the sound design in the outro of this song, just the these icy waste sounds all along the icy wastes. Yeah. It's just, I love it so much. Finishes the song absolutely brilliantly. Track 5, Warm Sporn. So I like this one quite a bit. There's a very obvious, I don't know if it's Scottish or Celtic, I'm too ignorant to know what exactly that influence is, but it's very obviously kind of a take on that kind of culture and that kind of style. And I like kind of the... I would call it the Viking singing in the back. I know it's not Viking, but uh -huh. that's kind of what it sounds like <laughs> to me. And I don't know, it's kind of, it's a weird song, but it, it's kind of a joyful little weird thing. And I, I appreciate that they went for it. I think it came out pretty well. Yeah, I, I do. I, I do really like this song. I, it is Scottish. Yes, certainly. And the, the, the name kind of hints at that. Yeah. I love how the melody bounces between different instruments here. I think the bass part that Ian played is spectacular. I only wish that John could have played that mm -hmm. with his ability for nuance. Yeah, that's a good bass part. Yeah, the bass part is is fantastic. I have a, I have a lot of thoughts about just different sounds used in, in, in this one. There's a phaser on the piano. Yeah. Which is a co quite a surprising sonic choice, but it's so good. And uh, I know what you mean about the Viking singing. It's just choir in the background just makes this track blend better 
blend in with the rest of this album as an instrumental. Mm -hmm. It feels not instrumental for that reason, even though you know there's no words or anything. But yeah, you don't feel like you've been. You don't. You don't feel like the voice, like the voice has d disappeared, right? Yeah. Just because people are going. <laughs> yeah, and it, the thing that's interesting about it is that it, it feels really distinct from Ian. Which maybe that's kind of an mm -hmm. obvious statement to make, but I mean, obviously, you know, for the huge majority of the album, you, the voice, you know, your voice in this album is Ian, but on this album, it feels very separate from that. It feels like it's something very different in whatever world this album is in, which is kind of cool, I think. Mm -hmm. It's it's part of when when Ian is singing uh, on a song in this album. This is kind of a non-statement, but we've got the author's voice, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in Warm Sporan, which has no lyrics, it's as if uh, the world is replying to him. It's it's a, they are in conversation mm -hmm. with the world around them. I would I would put it like that. The the amount of effects I think on on the on the different instruments on on this one it makes it sort of less in your face folk tune. And I would argue that Stormwatch is the album where they sort of finally truly incorporated all the folk sound or the folk elements into their own mm. and then of course they dropped it and smashed it to pieces yeah yeah <laughs> this is the track with a stark difference between the stephen wilson remix and the original yeah i was gonna that mention there is, that. there's an additional verse mm -hmm. in there and it's notable for several reasons oh, when i first heard it i didn't realize i was listening to a completely new piece of recording and i thought they cut out the first note because the melody that that they play and that in in the in the section that follows it begins on sort of from from a pickup note da 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 da, da, da and the verse well, I'll call it verse. The section with with the accordion is just ta da ta ta da da dum, and I thought they just they cut out a note, but then I realized no, it it was actually a completely new new section, and it has an accordion. Yeah, the accordion is totally new. We, right? Yeah, hadn't had since War Child. It is, you know, and it will disappear again until I don't know the secret language of birds probably. In, in the tell discography so yeah th that's a that's a fascinating little place yeah i think it's cool i think the accordion adds a lot mm -hmm. to it and of course um this one didn't come out that long ago as as we're recording this you know this box set came out 2019 i think so mm -hmm. i mean I, I still remember exactly when this one came out and i got my copy and so it's it's always kind of nice i mean well for some people it's nice for some people it's probably not but for me it was kind of nice to be listening to this album and then have something totally new and fresh that i've you know never heard in it before it was kind of cool mm -hmm. i think what the accordion is adding is a sonic texture similar to the bagpipes and it adds another layer of excitement between this melody in different instruments mm -hmm. In the end of the track, do you think the drums are double tracked? They must be, and oh, maybe maybe snare. even more than more than double. Yeah. There's, yeah, the snare is of... obviously overdubbed. You can hear it pretty mm -hmm. clearly. I really like the flute solo in this song, mm -hmm. and uh, I especially like how it ends because it ends very strangely. It, number one, you can you can kind of hear the mouthiness of it, which I like that a lot. When you can, mm -hmm. it kind of like breaks yeah. the wall between you know performer and recording. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and it just kind of stops for a second, then goes right back in. I, I kind of like how weird that is. Mm -hmm. And overall, the drumming, I think, is uh, is very clever. Yeah. Because it it can manages to combine the, these sort of Scottish roles with a really funky feel. Yeah. So it's yeah. neither one neither one or the other. 
Yeah, I think that's, I kind of wanted to express that, but I, I didn't really know how to until you said funky just now, but it actually is kind of a funky drum part, which is not something mm-hmm. you ever really see in Tull, but it's pretty apparent. And it sounds very modern, I think. Uh, yeah. Not even just the way it's played, but just like the recording of the drums on this song. It sounds quite modern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so c- conclusion, this is a brilliant instrumental. Yep, I like it. Track six, Something's on the Move. Oh, sunshine, take me now away from here. I like how in this how this song achieves kind of the feeling of movement because it feels all all of the time like it wants to run forward but it's held kind of held back until the chorus and the chorus just lets it lets it run it's it's got a pretty simple arrangement yeah compared to the rest of the album it's more of a straightforward rock song but it's kind of very evocative sort of emotionally how it feels to me what do you think I don't know. This is an, another low point for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is another one I don't have really a lot to say on. Uh, one thing that's kind of worth noting just factually about it is that this was the one song that was recorded in 78. So all of this album was recorded in a couple sessions in 79. And uh, they took one song from some sessions in 78 for this album. So it's a little bit, I mean, the sessions are the sessions, but it's a little bit disconnected just in in, mm-hmm. in that sense and that it's kind of taken from a previous session. But um, I don't know. It's again, it's kind of like Orion for me. It just, it doesn't stick with me much. It just kind of goes in one year out the other. The riff mm-hmm. isn't particularly catchy to me. And uh, mm-hmm. the only thing I really notice about it is that there's a lot of cowbell on it. <laughs> there's a lot of kind of like a <laughs> yeah. funny application of cowbell yeah that's true i will agree that this is not the one of tal's most most exciting songs and even to the point that it being more straightforward and more rock it kind of reminds me of later albums mm. like something wouldn't be out of place on rock island or crest of an ave you mm. know? yeah where they you know started going for simpler stuff but i think uh, there's a lot of really crazy drums on the flute solo in this one mm-hmm. so uh i think it it does a, within the context of the album what it, it does a good job of carrying the momentum because it, it's quite energetic it's quite propels you forward and well it's not terribly long yeah i could describe the chorus as you know propelling you i can kind of see mm-hmm. that yeah, in contrast with with the verses that have um, a little more of a stopping, starting, yeah, kind of rhythm. The, it is v- very clearly a very very specific choice to to, to create that, that that contrast and let the chorus have the effect of being pr- propelling. But yeah, I don't have a ton to say about about this one. Yeah, it's kind of a throwaway for me. It's not one I ever listen to. Well, since I don't ever listen to Tal on Shuffle, I listen to it every time I listen to Stormwatch. Wow. Yeah, I, I shuffle my Tal stuff all the time. It's fun. Yeah, I, I just I don't really find it enjoyable to shuffle anything. Mm. I'm the kind of old school nerd in that regard. I listen to albums. I may listen to a specific song if I feel like it. Mm-hmm a specific piece of music but i will not just willy-nilly shuffle the pieces of music around i used to know people uh in high school and stuff who 
I mean, for me, to me, shuffling is fine, but like, I would never listen to an album that way. <laughs> you know, the first time I ever heard yeah. it. You know, like, of mm -hmm. course, I would always listen to it front to back first. But uh, I actually knew people in high school who, the first time they got an album, they would shuffle it, and I was like, I couldn't believe that. But you know, you would ever. That's like, like such a masochistic way of approaching music. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, though, I think there are there are albums that don't really have a lot of thoughts be behind the the track order yeah pretty much but every album put out today i'd say it's <laughs> like that <laughs> the, the way that streaming has kind of changed the game with that is really sad track seven old ghosts i'll be coming again like an old dog in pain Glam through the eye of the hurricane down to the stone this one's kind of funny. I like it overall. I think it's kind of one of the more underrated songs, but I don't think there's anything spectacular about it. I think that the best the best strength of this song is the chorus, because the chorus is quite powerful, and I think it's pretty catchy. Mm -hmm. um, I like kind of the theme of it, too. If you read the booklet, he mentions how there's a specific place that this song was inspired by. Yeah. Uh, the graveyard in Kilmory, Scotland, where he uh, lived on the Isle of Skye, I think. And... Uh, so I think that's kind of cool how it was inspired by an actual place out there. And uh, the strings work pretty well in it. I really like the bass line in the song, kind of the main bass line, especially the one that's played over and over at the end. So it's nothing amazing to me, but I'd, I'd enjoy it generally. I think it's uh, a little bit of an overlooked song. Yeah, it's it's not really noticeable, I think, as, as tall songs go. But yeah. I, re I really like it. It's got one on this album. I think it's one of the more interesting bass parts by Ian up there yeah. with, with, with Warm Sporan. Lots of lots of interesting little things. And I like how cohesive it, it is. The, like there is this motif in the intro, the ta-da-da, ta-da-dum. And this rhythmic idea repeats across the, throughout the song, across different instruments not just that melodic idea ta -da -da, ta -da -dum, but just the ta -da -da, ta -da -da appears uh, you, you will hear it uh, in in drums you will hear it in bass mm -hmm. and that's kind of really intentional and really it just pulls the song together yeah i think the the, the delayed flute sounds really nice on this one and it isn't often that ian plays a two-voice part on the flute Mm. He double tracks his flute, yes, but a two-part harmony, that's kind of new, and that kind of one of the hallmarks of this song. Uh, there's what is called in electronic music a riser uh, before the last instrumental break. Just, well, everything just goes... Yeah. And yeah, I, I love that moment. Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I think of too, with the drum part, not just in this song, but really on the whole album, there's a lot of China symbol on this uh, uh -huh. album, which is kind of funny because it's not that Barry never used it, but it, it kind of seems like throughout the folk trilogy, he started using it more and more, kind of starting it with Hunting Girl. So it's a little kind of uh, fun, innocuous thing to notice. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Maybe he thought it blended well with the style. Yeah. So it fitted the, the direction. Uh, in the outro slash coda, I really like how everyone all the instruments just get more jaunty and upbeat but in a slightly unhinged way mm -hmm. and i again i think that's exactly the kind of emotion they went for but it's because of the of the theme of the song about old ghosts playing and what the end of the song sounds to me is like a dance macabre situation yeah i can see that 
So, yeah, I think very cleverly put together. And it's not a high point, but I think it creates, sets a wonderful mood. Yeah. And it's emotionally a really nice song. And lyrically, it even manages to rope in the whole climate theme thing where they mm-hmm. have uh, in the eye of the hurricane and all that. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's specifically a climate reference, but the, the weather reference for sure. Yeah. Track eight, Dung Ringel. In the wee house underneath you And down by the ringel On we'll watch the old We've talked before that uh, a lot of Tal albums have that little acoustic number some albums more than one and if if i listed next to each other those those songs like cheap day return or requiem or only solitaire and dunringle for me dunringle will be this acoustic tall song number one because wow. i absolutely love it it's uh, it's uh, at one point i think i think it used to be my favorite tall song ever kind of surprising like the favorite tall song mm-hmm. again with no flute and no specific tall like things but just the guitar work on this one the the sound the uh, spoken word elements it is so brilliant I, I i won't say it's my favorite tall song now but certainly one of the one of the best yeah it definitely deserves its place as like one of the all-time great acoustic tall songs if you were making you know a collection of acoustic tall you would definitely uh have to include this one on there yeah i think this like i said in the intro this is probably the only song on the album that had any kind of legacy afterwards mm-hmm, and i don't even think that it really had a strong one particularly you know it, i don't i don't see this one mentioned that often especially in kind of mainstream music press and that kind of thing but i think it achieves you know what it wants pretty well i really like the ghostly vocal effect and that kind of thing yeah mm-hmm, the delays on on it yeah yeah fantastic the actual guitar part it sounds very simple to me and i mean i'm not a guitarist so i wouldn't really know but it, it sounds like there's not a lot of complex stuff happening it's not that simple i mean it's certainly playable mm-hmm. but um, it's not obvious and in the places where it's double tracked there's a, l- a lot of clever interplay between the two guitar parts mm-hmm. I would even say uh, about this song, I probably, well, my favorite lyric on the album, this one, just so much, so many wonderful images. And the spoken word part, I knew that by heart very early you know, in, in life. Mm-hmm. When I first discovered this album, I fell in love with this song and the, this spoken word part, I just memorized. Yeah, Francis Wilson is the guy's name. I mm-hmm. looked that up ahead of time. So he was an actual weatherman for uh, Tame's Television who they brought in to do this. And I don't know, I could take it or leave it. It doesn't bother me that much, but I'm not particularly wedded to it, the spoken word intro. The only thing I can really say about it, and this is just an observation, it's not a criticism, the guy sounds extremely British to my American ears, (laughs) which I I guess is not surprising because he's a news anchor. And I'm not, to any British listeners, I'm not saying anything about that, it's just kind of an observation, but to me he sounds extremely British and that's kind of what my ears always pick up immediately. (laughs) I think Francis even contributed some of the the text. Oh, I didn't know that. In this this intro, yeah, because Ian provided him with with an idea and Francis put put it together into something that would appear to make sense in a in a weather broadcast context context, mm-hmm. which I kind of 
found funny because I imagined that to be, to be all Ian. Yeah. But yeah, that, that that's a, another brilliant little moment. But yeah, I mean, there's not not a lot to discuss about this song because it's it's short and it's simple in yeah in the way it's, it doesn't have a lot of complexity throughout the song and not a lot of things change but yeah a masterpiece for sure the final chord is kind of a strange sounding score mm -hmm. yeah because the there's a minor second be between the double track guitars so two there's two notes that sound very close to each other mm. and they create a dissonance but the dissonance is split between uh, left and right mm -hmm. so it, it is not as dissonant but it creates uh, certainly a feel of unresolved tension yeah. at the end. And I think most Tull fans know this, but Dunringle is, of course, an actual historical place uh, on the Isle of Skye mm -hmm. in Scotland, which I want to go there someday, but haven't. I've actually been to Scotland, <laughs> but I haven't been up there yet. Yeah, that's cool. That, that could, could be a nice trip. Mm -hmm. Around the world trip. <laughs> yeah, you can use my... Of, of, uh, of Tull places. Using Tull your Google map. Maps. Yes. Yeah. There's plenty mm -hmm. of toll places you can do toll tourism in the uk mm -hmm. yeah that could could be a good idea for when the world goes out of quarantine mm -hmm. track nine flying dutchman so i'm a little bit tense on this one because I remember you mentioning, maybe off the podcast, that there's one song that you're not a fan of on this album. Uh -huh. And I don't remember you mentioning that yet. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you say that it's this one. And the reason that makes me tense is because this is by far my favorite track on this album. <laughs> so which one is it? Uh, no, we've already gone through, through the songs that are the lower points for me, which were Home and uh, Something's on the Move. Okay, good. I'm relieved then. So yeah. I love Flying Dutchman. Yeah, this was one of those songs, I mentioned kind of with Home that I didn't really, I guess, I don't know, discover it until later. Mm -hmm. And this is a song that I, I'm sure I knew about this song for a long time, but for whatever reason, I never really got into it until the, the remix came out, so not that long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is a phenomenal song, I think. It's, it's one of the most underrated Tull songs ever, I would actually say. And I love the lyrics. I think the lyrics are brilliant on it. It's some, some of Ian's best lyrics. And I just love the chorus and kind of how important and, I guess, mournful it sounds. And the, the, the thing I love the most about it is the bridge. I think the bridge is fantastic. It's kind of like the peak of folk toll. Yeah, I, I have a lot to say about this one. I think this, this song kind of sonically recreates the feeling of waves on the shore it, mm. because it has that kind of motion. And yeah, the, the, another thing I immediately notice about about it when I listen to it is the bass tone because it's immediately so much better when John is <laughs> yeah. doing it. And what I feel about this song is that it is it has the same model as Pibrock, actually. It has the bluesy rhythm, this, this kind of slow blues, yeah, yeah. Uh, w with a folk part in the middle, but. I think between Pibrock and then No Lullaby and then finally this song, this is the one where they made everything work. Yeah, I see, Yeah, I never made that the, connection, but you're right. Yeah, I think that they kind of tried to do this sort of thing, this sort of musical idea, and Flying Dutchman is, is where they absolutely 100%, 1000% succeeded. 
Yeah. The 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 folky part in the middle it gels together with the rest of the song extremely well. Mm -hmm. I like the mandolins on it. Uh, yeah. They kind of kind of create a frantic feeling. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I like how the lyrics change throughout it. So, for example, you know, kind of the main line of the song is. Um, you better be there when the Dutchman comes, but at the end it mm -hmm. switches to, uh, you know, it's the Dutchman you will meet, mm -hmm. or the Dutchman you will be floating you out will to be. sea. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Floating out to sea, I like that. Yeah. I also like how the outro in this one has a kind of a jam feel to it. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of surprising, partly because not something Tal used a lot of in, in this era. Yeah. So this song being quite long, and I think the second longest song on the album, uh, it doesn't bother you, right? <laughs> no, well, I was going to mention like, that, like, if, yeah. if there's any kind of negative I can say about this song, and it's not really a strong negative, but it's not the length necessarily, but kind of the slowness of the beginning of it can, I can see how it could be kind of sloggy for some people. It doesn't bother mm -hmm. me that much, but I can kind of see how, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit slow, and I, I could see how that could be annoying at times, but it's not a big deal to me. Yeah, well... This is the the kind of rhythm it's that that is supposed to be slow. That slow yeah. blues, the doom, 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 mm -hmm. and yeah, I think that's it. Feels slow if you want to rush, mm. and if you want to give into it, then it's totally fine. Yeah. Track ten, elegy. I think I mentioned it before, but when I was in school and I learned to play the recorder because flutes were hard to come by, so recorders were, were all I had, and I went uh, to a teacher. Uh, this was the song, uh, this was the, the, the piece of music that I specifically asked my teacher to write out in sheet music to transcribe. And this is the first transcription, the first sheet music I ever played. And I still have that piece, that l little piece of staff paper uh, with elegy written out on it. That's awesome. I remember you mentioning that on the first episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously, famously about this song, uh, th this one, it was written by Dee Palmer yeah. and not by Ian. And it's credited as such and it is, it is one of the famously non-Ian Tal compositions. Mm -hmm. Of which there's very, very few. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly has a very classical, very Bach-like feel. Yeah. And D explains what actual piece of uh, ancient music it's based on. It's called Dies Irae. Right, yeah. And this is the piece of, a piece of music that inspired a lot of composers, not just her. And well, what is interesting, uh, in the, she no, uh, makes a note of that in the booklet, it's in a major key, but it also uses what's called a line cliché, a descending bass line. But you will normally hear that in, a, in association with a minor key. And using a line cliché in major is, well, I wouldn't say unheard of, but it's certainly something that's not done very often. Mm -hmm. So that that's kind of one of, one of the brilliant strokes, and may, maybe what makes the the, mel the melody extra wistful, the juxtaposition of it being major but also slow and kind of mournful. Yeah, this this song is about Dee Palmer's father. Mm -hmm. That's who the elegy is about, and supposedly this was written uh, just 
very shortly after he died.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, I think there was kind of a myth for a while that it was intended to be an elegy for the band, <laughs> but、uh, it's well, not. It, it works as such. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, again, yeah. Uh, again, we shouldn't be confusing elegy with eulogy. Right. <laughs> yeah.、Uh, but it, it works as such. And、uh, as a final piece on the final album for this band lineup, as one of the final pieces that John Glasscock played on. Right. It's. It, yeah, it's very fitting. It's kind of a farewell. Yeah, that's how I. It's hard not to view it that way.、Mm-hmm. Even if it wasn't intended at the time,、mm-hmm. it absolutely became that in context. Yeah. I like the second flutes that come in, if you know what I mean.、Mm-hmm. Yeah.、Um, I don't know what the musical term for that is. Maybe counterpoint, maybe? But with the. They're a little bit in, counter, in counterpoint, I would say. And then the, the electric guitar parts are pretty soaring as you come to the end、mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, again, quite a heroic、yeah. sort of guitar. And yeah, I think it's just, just a little shy of, of becoming cheesy. Yeah, because yeah. Because that, that sort that. of classical melody on an electric guitar can very well be.、Mm-hmm. But I think they managed to avoid that by some, some skin of their teeth. Yeah. It kind of becomes sort of march like as it goes towards the end. Mm hmm. Yeah, it does have a valedictory kind of quality to it. Yeah. And I like how it fades out as well. I think it was an appropriate、mm-hmm. decision to have it fade out. Yeah. There's、uh, something, Something's on the Move also fades out on the album, but I feel that the reason for that is that they didn't just know where it was going.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can Because, see that. Yeah. But th- this one, yeah, it, it's supposed to fade out because you know, this music is going away. Right. This is the, the, sort of, the sort of feeling that it creates. And so it ends the album on kind of a bittersweet, wistful note, which is、mm-hmm. just so interesting because, you know, it placed in the context of the band's history. It, for fans, it can you know, feel kind of teary eyed, but it's, it's funny because that was, of course, not the intended context, and that context wasn't even created yet, of course, because the band hadn't broken up yet. Yeah, that's true. But also, maybe I'm not. It's not that I think this, but you can also partly view it as a you know, self fulfilling prophecy.、Mm-hmm. They made this album that sound very, sounded very final. Yeah. And so it could have, to some extent, facilitated、um, the decision to call it quits with this with, with sort of the, this lineup, this age of the band. I think without a doubt there was a decision to. At this point, there was a decision to take a break at least, you know, take a hiatus.、Mm-hmm. And、um, that's not surprising, I guess, because, I mean, it, you know, you can kind of forget about it sometimes. But when you look back, they had been doing a studio album every single year since 68, which is really insane. You know, when you just think about the output of most, you know, rock bands, it's really amazing.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. The decision to take a break, I think, would, would, would have been quite obvious with John's death and with everyone being. Quite at, at that point, probably tired of touring. Yeah. But yes, of course, when, when the album was being recorded and was being put out, and no one had thought that the decision will, be, will become so abrupt. Yeah. So we've made it through the 70s, every album of the golden era of the band. So when I look at、uh, Stormwatch in retrospective, it's a strange album for me to talk about because. I don't dislike it, but it also doesn't. It's kind of in a weird no man's land where it's not in the lower tier of 70s albums for me, but it also doesn't quite hit the higher ones. 
And my opinion has changed over time, though. Uh, it's in the, in the positive direction, where uh, I used to not really give any thought or consideration to it at all, but there's a couple of tracks on it now that I at least really like. I know it's very different for you, though. Yeah, it is. Because as of now, I think we we went through most of my absolutely favorite Tal albums. And uh, of course, that is not surprising because most people really love the, the this first half of the, of Tal's discography. And Stormwatch is up there. Uh, if I don't distinguish between like the, like you will have the topmost tier and just the top tier, then uh, the albums will be Benefit, uh, Thick as a Brick, A Passion Play, Minstrel and Stormwatch. Mm-hmm. These are my some of my absolutely favorite Tal albums, and not right next to them, probably. But I think I have two more albums in the Tal discography that I really love and that I, that I rank quite highly. We will come to them in the next half a year, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But yes, I'll briefly repeat that I do rank Stormwatch above Heavy Horses, and I rank Heavy Horses above Songs from the Wood because I have more of a connection with it. Yeah. And emotionally, Stormwatch works better for me. And yes, it was one of the first Tower records we had, so I did create that connection by virtue of listening to it so much. But also, this is the kind of moody, dark, tall material that I enjoy most with this band. Mm-hmm. To kind of view the 70s in retrospective, I think I've probably mentioned in previous episodes but for me there's a very clear top five for me all of which come from the 70s and uh well actually well one comes from the 60s and for me they would be stand up thick as a brick passion play minstrel and uh songs from the wood and for me i think i mentioned that there's really only two albums before 1980 that for me don't really cut it with those being too old to rock and roll and war child mm-hmm. and i used to kind of play stormwatch in that category but i think over the past couple of years as i've gone to gotten to know it more it's kind of moved up a bit more and there's even some days where i think that too old to rock and roll could even move up there for me because there really are parts of that album i actually quite like a lot but for now that's kind of where i leave it with the 70s mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited to go to the 80s just because it's quite an under-discussed period of the band's history i think yeah i agree We'll have to see how how much we have to say about it. Yeah. But certainly, it is exciting because of that. And there's a lot of different opinions about the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a, quite a lot of people, I think, who hate 80s toll and just don't bother with it at all. But there's also some people who are, you know, they defend a lot of what came out in the 80s and think that there's, you know, uh, a lot of material there that isn't discussed as much, which I hope that we can kind of provide on this podcast. Yeah, I think our listeners can count on two albums from the 80s being vehemently defended by either of us. Yeah, I can (laughs) say that for sure. So, yeah, I'm quite happy that you're kind of coming around on Stormwatch because Mm -hmm. this is one one of the important albums for me. What would you name as your favorites and least favorites? My favorites and least favorites, well, I, I will say, because you, as previously stated, you don't argue with goosebumps. <laughs> My favorites will be Don Ringel, and then I'll probably say North Sea Oil, mm-hmm. and then maybe Dark Ages as well. Uh, least favorites, I will, I will just say something's on the move, mm-hmm. because I don't have, I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of the, of the song Home, but that, as I said, is probably because of placement. Yeah. And not because this, the song is weak, because it definitely isn't. Mm-hmm. When I sat down to think about 
my favorites and least favorites. There were three each that very easily came to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, for favorites, they would be Flying Dutchman, North Sea Oil, and Home. And for least favorites, they'd be Something's on the Move, Dark Ages, and Orion. Uh-huh. Ooh, Orion. That's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for taking this trip through the golden era of Tull with us, and we hope you'll continue on with us into the 80s. I think there's a lot of really interesting discussion, not just with us, but with you guys, too. Hearing your comments about the 80s, there's a lot of Tull uh, albums in the 80s that I think don't have a lot of consensus on in the Tull community, so it'd be interesting to kind of see what you guys think uh, in conjunction with us. So we'll see you in two weeks with A. See you. Cheers. Cheers.